And so we stop, and then the bear stops. And he's looking back and forth, and he's sizing us up, and he takes another couple of steps. And then we have to take him now another couple of steps. But at that point now, we've asserted to this bear that we're not afraid of him. And predators don't like other animals that are not afraid of them because it's, it's a threat to them. So they he eventually sort of backed away, and we were able to keep this buffer of space between him and us just by moving ahead in this slightly aggressive manner. It was, uh, it, was it got my heart rate pounding, that's for sure, because I've never been in a situation like that before. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 265, George Karunas returns to tell us about more tornadoes, hurricanes, polar bears, and even his plans to backpack and camp in North Korea. Hey, have you dropped by our ASP member deals site yet? If not, what are you waiting for? There are some great discounts in there for everything adventure. Some podcasts ask you to donate through sites like Patreon or PayPal, but we wanted to provide you with something in return for your support of our show. So we launched the ASP Member Deals site for you to get great discounts from our partner vendors. It's easy and you can become a show sponsor for less than five bucks a month. Would you do me a favor and check it out? It's members.adventuresportspodcast.com. Thanks guys in advance and now on with the show. All right, guys, I have George Karunas back on with me. If you guys have been listening to the Adventure Sports Podcast the whole time, you'll recognize this guy. He was on episode 89 way back in September of 2015. Um, George is an adventurer of all adventures. This guy goes down into the deepest volcanoes. He plays with polar bears. What else do you do, George? You go into crystal caves. You're, <laughs> I mean, you're, the list is endless. Obviously, you're a storm chaser. You're playing with volcanoes and hurricanes and, and all kinds of things. So like yep. I said, it's been since 2015 since we've had you on. So I'm excited to have you back on so we can all hear what you've been up to because I'm sure it's been quite a bit. Oh, well, the pleasure is mine. Yeah, it, it's it's hard for me to actually define what it is I do and explain it to people, but... <laughs> I sort of boil it down to um, if Mother Nature is trying to kill you, I'm probably nearby with a camera. <laughs> right. There you go. That's I like sort that. Of how That's how it goes. Story. Any extreme force of nature, whether it's erupting volcanoes or hurricanes or tornadoes or avalanches or, or extreme parts of the world, I'm usually there. So that's right what on. I do. All right. Well, I want to do this episode with your websites um, in the beginning, because what I want people to do, if they happen to be sitting at a computer, and please don't do it from your car, but if you happen to be sitting at a computer, check out uh, George's websites while we're uh, while you're listening to the interview. So stormchaser.ca, and it's .ca because George, George is uh, to the north of us, one of our fellow Canadians up there. And uh, you can also find him at uh, furiousearth.com. It goes to the same place. So check him out there, and then later on, you can find him at G. Karunas uh, on YouTube. You can check out some great videos there, but do that after you listen to the show. So I wanted to get that out of the way so people can kind of follow along and see some of the, the cool images of the things you're about to talk about. 
Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for that. That's uh, that's awesome. A lot has happened since the last time I uh, I talked with you, and uh, I've had some pretty big uh, volcano expeditions. Uh, probably some of the the most dramatic things that I've done since last we spoke. And the most uh, the craziest one was in uh, in the Congo jungle, right near the border with Rwanda. And uh, there's a there's like an eleven thousand foot volcano called Mount Niragongo there, and uh, we rappelled down five hundred meters. Uh, wow, that's that's like five. That's yeah, more than five football fields down into the crater, mm. and I was able to walk right up to the the boiling lake of lava. And just trying to do anything in Congo is complicated and dangerous, let alone <laughs> sure. trying to go inside a volcano. Yeah, no kidding. So I have to ask. I mean, you're constantly in volcanoes. At least it seems that way. Seriously, do they ever get old? I mean, <laughs> I imagine you know the answer is obviously clear. But you know, it's like doesn't one volcano just start to look like all the other volcanoes? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just well, setting up a softball. Always, they're always changing, right? There's it's it's the part of the Earth that's the closest to being alive. Mm -hmm. And that is part of the draw for me is I love going and seeing these parts of the earth that are in flux. They're, they're undergoing this extreme transformation and each volcano behaves differently. Some of them spew out uh, explosions of ash. Some of them have lava flows. Some of them have lakes of sulfuric acid. So they're all different. They all have their own personality, for lack of a better term. And I just keep going back to them. Plus, it really helps to feed my travel bug. I just love traveling. So I don't have, there's no volcanoes here in Canada. All we have is snow. So uh, I have to uh, travel great distances to go and visit these places. Yeah, and I'm sure you do travel great distances. Well, I know you have been to quite a few, but um, you went down into Africa's most dangerous volcano. Tell us about that. And why is it the most dangerous? Or why is it considered that? It, it, it's a pretty amazing place. Yeah, Niragongo is the name of the volcano, and it's in the Virunga, uh, Virunga National Park, which is better known for the mountain gorillas, the gorillas in the mist, mm -hmm. uh, Diane Fossey and that whole story. And uh, there are two active volcanoes there, and this particular one has the world's largest lake of lava. There's only about five or six places in the world that have these permanent lakes of lava. This is one of them. And the volcano is right near the city of Goma, which is home to about 800,000 people. And it's sandwiched between the volcano and, and uh, Central Africa's largest lake, Lake Kivu. And in 1977 and in 2002, the lava lake drained through a fissure on the side of the volcano that mm. opened up. And fast-moving rivers of lava poured through the city, cutting it in half. And there are cars to this very day that are still buried in rock from those those 2002 lava flows. So the people that live in the shadow of this volcano never know when the next uh, lava flow is going to come pouring through the city. Yeah, no kidding. I remember the images, and I didn't realize we were talking about the the same volcano. And so, yeah, it it literally divided the the city and or the town in half, and there's just this massive. Uh, coagulated lava flow running through the middle of it that they really haven't been able to do anything with. Yeah, and it gets even scarier than that. The lake that the city is on, Lake Kivu, is uh, one of only a few lakes in the world that has a large quantity of dissolved carbon dioxide at the bottom. And that carbon dioxide, if it were to be disturbed by a large earthquake or a big volcanic eruption, can actually 
explode. The lake could literally explode, come out of solution, and smother the entire city in a blanket of carbon dioxide. And this happened in Cameroon uh, about 40 or so years ago um, and killed about uh, 1,700 people, if memory serves correct. Um, it's called a limnic eruption or an exploding lake. And Lake Kivu, beside Goma, is about a thousand times larger. So it's it's not likely to do that, but if it does do that, it would be absolutely catastrophic. So this poor city is sandwiched between two potential natural disasters, one triggered by the other. Wow. Yeah, that's got to be a little nerve-wracking. So is there any way to tell um, uh, the cycle or you know when a volcano is about to erupt? I mean, I mean, obviously we can check seismic activity, but do you have a, a an idea of the time frame that you're looking at? It really does depend on the volcano. And this this one in particular, because it's in the Congo, and there are so many problems there, the civil war, there is the, the Rwandan refugees came over through Goma in, in the 90s. There's uh, the M23 rebel groups. The the monitoring of the volcano is very poor. The The equipment gets stolen. The, the park rangers have to be armed the entire time because it's such a dangerous place. So the way to predict a volcano is to monitor it very, very closely. And unfortunately, this volcano sits in that sort of blind spot of being very dangerous, but yet not nearly as well monitored as it should be. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I imagine, you know, like the uh, what we were just talking about with a, a fissure, basically a hole, you know, in the side of the volcano. This is not an eruption. This is basically just a breach, you know, like a breach of a dam. So there is no warning for that at all. I mean, that's just exactly. lava starts coming down, and you better get the heck out of the way. Get out of the way, and and some of it was uh, flowing at uh, close to highway speeds because wow. it's very steep and very fluid. So, so our mission was to go there. And we were trying to take a United Nations helicopter up to the, the summit. Um, we had a, assistance from the UN. But uh, several failed attempts later because of bad weather and poor uh, judgment in terms of whether there was enough space to land at the summit or not, um, we ended up having to abandon the helicopter idea. And then we hired 75 porters to help us carry all of the equipment up, the six-hour hike up the side of the, the volcano. About 20 of those porters were just for the water. So that gives you an idea of the manpower yeah, that we bet. had to recruit just to just to pull off this expedition. We brought a mile, about a mile of rope, and uh, it was we were up there for over a week, just setting everything up, waiting for the weather to pass. This volcano, of course, creates its own weather because the moist air goes up the side of the volcano, creates rain and thunderstorms, and it's uh, hell on earth. My tent almost blew off the mountain the first night. It literally <laughs> got shredded. I had to abandon my tent and. Oh, it was just, it's a nightmare up there. It's not a place that's really conducive to life for very long. Does it, you, you obviously have a lot of experience with volcanoes. Does, does it ever make you uneasy to actually stay overnight on them? Or are you just comfortable enough that, you know, you'd pretty much are, you'd have to hit the lottery to, to be involved in an eruption? Um, it's interesting because it really does depend on the volcano. Uh, always beware a quiet volcano because the energy is building up, mm. right? This particular volcano has a has this constant release of energy because of this boiling lake of lava. So it's less likely to have a catastrophic eruption while you sleep. Whereas if I were to camp at the summit of, oh, let's say Mount Etna, which is in Italy, which has been very active recently, that would be more frightening for me than than some of these other volcanoes. So right. you get to know their personalities and what they like to do, and and more importantly, 
how they are likely to try and kill you. So what you're saying is volcanoes are a lot like children. You know, if if a child is too quiet, then you know something's up, and you might want to keep your uh, your wits about you. <laughs> or so I've heard from my friends who have children. So yes, <laughs> I'm warning you. <laughs> yeah, well, you see, I Stick travel with volcanoes. Yeah, I travel between 150 to 220 nights a year. So I'm I'm barely home long enough to to make children, let alone raise them. So. <laughs> you might you might be safer than some of us. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Very cool. <laughs> So tell me what it's like to be down in a volcano. How do you how do you prepare yourself? How do you suit up? How do you descend into it? Yeah, it it takes a lot of work, a lot of manpower. So we have to rig anchors up at the up at the summit. Um big special bags that we fill with rocks and we use bolts into some of the larger boulders and things like that and and send the ropes down, but we can't do it all at once because it's far too deep. So we have to do it in multiple stages. So I believe we did that one in three different stages. And there's a big plateau about halfway down. So we'd go down, we'd rest at the halfway point, and I'd be carrying with me all my camera gear. I've got a special heat suit that I use when I get close to the to the lava. I've got uh, a gasoline-powered rope ascender, which is basically a, a small internal combustion engine with a special pulley system that I can attach to my climbing harness. And that huh. helps me get back up and out. Getting <laughs> down is the easy part. It's getting back up. It's like climbing a mountain in reverse, right? Well, I wondered so, about that because you have a lot of extra gear on, I would imagine, because of the heat. I mean, not all vol- volcanoes. You probably have a little bit of room in some of them, but I imagine some of these, you actually have to be geared up with some protective equipment at the same time while you're descending or ascending. Uh, not so much while you're descending and ascending, but only when you get right up in close okay. proximity to the lava. Um, generally, you're not rappelling down in close proximity to the most extreme heat. So that's not so bad, but you still have to carry all this gear with you and it's right. heavy. It's hard to, hard to bring back up, you know, gravity, it's uh, gra- gravity's a harsh mistress. She is not very, uh, you know, not, not very, uh, <laughs> forgiving. forgiving <laughs> there's yeah, a good word. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. So we have to bring all this gear down. You get down to the very bottom and actually the most dangerous thing is falling rocks because if you, dislodge a boulder or even a small rock with your ropes that can hit another rock which will dislodge another rock and the next thing you know you've got an avalanche of boulders raining down on you and that's the kind of thing you don't really think about uh, when you're when you're sort of planning these things ahead of time but you always have to keep it in the back of your mind so it's not so much the liquid rock you got to worry about it's the stuff that cooled thousands of years ago that wants to fall on your head yeah that's a good point yep so you get right oh sorry I was just going to say, speaking of the the liquid rock, you know, when you're up against the the edge of it, what is it? Can you put it into any kind of perspective that we can understand? Um, imagine turning your oven up to full blast, letting it preheat, and then opening the oven door and sticking your face in. You know that blast of heat <laughs> if you're checking on your dinner that you get. Imagine that, but being completely constant. Wow. And the sound of waves crashing, but it's not water, it's liquid rock. And then you get on top of that the smell of sulfur dioxide, which is like that fire and brimstone smell, that that struck match smell. And it's overpowering when the wind blows across the lava onto you because it brings the heat and it brings the gas over top. And it stings your eyes and burns your lungs and you have to put a gas mask on just to be able to stand there. And then as you walk closer to the edge, the heat becomes so overpowering that 
there was a gap in between my glove and the sleeve of my suit. And I got a radiation burn just from the radiant heat on my arm, just from a small little gap in there. Wow. So it's, it's really hard to describe until you've experienced it firsthand. Yeah, imagine. yeah, that's why I ask. I just, I just can't imagine, you know, I guess sticking your head in an oven is in one way to put it. I saw you standing on the edge of one, you know, talking to your camera with your, with your hood off and your heat shield up. And I thought, man, that's gotta be piping. I mean, obviously you're talking about how hot it was, but I just can't, I just couldn't put it in perspective on how hot it would be. Yeah, if you, if you see me in a shot like that, it, what you don't see is five seconds later me running away from the edge, <laughs> grabbing the back of my neck going, ow, 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 because you can only stand in those positions for a few seconds at a time without full protection on. Yeah. yeah. Any, <laughs> I've melted, for the literally shot. melted cameras doing that kind, those kind of things. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's going to be an amazing experience. And what ended up, what ended, uh, ended up happening was because the United Nations wasn't able to get us up to this uh, volcano, they kind of... Uh, felt like they owed us a favor. And when we came off of this volcano, they offered to fly us to the Barunga's second active volcano, which is called Niamurigira. And this one is very difficult to get to because you have to fly over rebel-controlled territory just to get to this volcano. And we went there for a day, and the chopper flight was successful, and the volcano was erupting very spectacularly. Another lake of lava, really cool. But then when we were coming back, our badass South African flight crew <laughs> working, you know as peacekeepers in the congo so these guys are badass by default they uh they said that they have two choices they can either fly really high out of bullet range from the rebels or they can fly really low and fast so of course being the badasses that they are they were flying just over the treetops at full speed and we had both doors on the side of the helicopter wide open oh man Oh, it was amazing. It was like the best thrill ride you could possibly imagine. And as we're flying along, of course, we never even knew if we were getting shot at because we were going so fast. But you could see the campfires of the individual little um, rebel groups that we were flying over between the volcano and the city. So, yeah, it was it was cool, but kind of, you know, I have a lot of respect for these guys. What they do is dangerous. Oh, yeah. You're just hoping maybe they're relaxing in their hammocks when you go by and don't have a chance to uh, to get up and grab their rifle. Exactly. Well, that's why they go at full speed at low at low altitude. That's crazy. So, what happened to the high and fast option? Well, that's not as dramatic. <laughs> yeah, I'm course. there and I'm filming. <laughs> so, as soon as I've, if there's one thing in my life I've learned that very few people will actually get to learn this lesson, but I'll share it with you because it's it's bizarre. It's one of those Georgisms. Um, helicopter pilots will always show off if given half a chance. <laughs> yeah, Especially I can see that. our cameras around. <laughs> so, of course, you know, we were filming. I had my video camera, and uh, these guys, they told me the two choices, but there was never really any choice in their mind. So that's like giving a taxi driver an IndyCar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, can, yeah. they can't you not know, demonstrate their skills. You know what's going to happen. It's like it's kind of like asking your barber if you need a haircut, right? You yeah. know what the the outcome is going to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, let me show you. <laughs> Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last twenty years. Spring has sprung, but there's still a lot of great skiing in the backcountry, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands including Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, 
G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. So I saw that you uh, you actually did a Burger King commercial, which was kind of interesting. How did that come about? That was so bizarre. Uh, I got literally a phone call out of the blue one day, and it was the ad agency for Burger King. They had read about me um, and my expedition to the flaming gas crater in Turkmenistan, which we talked about the last time I was on the show. Right. Uh, check out that old episode. And uh, they basically had this idea for the angriest Whopper, which is like a hotter version of the angry Whopper. And they wanted me to help them. And basically what we did is we went to Guatemala and I rappelled down inside the Pacaya volcano, one of Central America's most active volcanoes. And they, they made me bring with me a special lantern. And the idea was to light the lantern off of the lava at the bottom of the crater bring it back up, hand the lantern off to some contest winners who then took that flame and kept it alive for a week and a half on a road trip from Guatemala all through Central America, ending in Brazil. And of course, last year, the Olympics were in Brazil. So this was like a symbolic torch-carrying thing. Right. And then I have ended up flying to Brazil, to Sao Paulo, to meet them where they gave me the flame back and I went to the Burger King <laughs> and lit the grill to cook up the first of their angriest Whoppers. It was just the most absurd, over-the-top commercial idea I had ever heard, but it gave me the opportunity to do a, literally a world's first. No one had ever gone to the bottom of this volcano before, so I jumped at the idea. It was a ton of fun. Wow, that's cool. So they actually literally did contain the flame all the way back. It wasn't just made up. Oh, they had backup lanterns, and so they had, they would take the flame and they would light several of these lanterns <laughs> and keep them in separate vehicles in yeah, case. Pretty cool. Problem. Yeah, they were very. Uh, they did their due diligence. They really wanted to do this correctly. They uh, they even had to charter a private plane to go from one town to another because you can't drive from Panama through through Colombia. You actually because of the Darien Gap. There's right. a place no roads so they actually had to bring this lit flame on a chartered airplane and had special permission and all this yeah they they uh they spared no expense that's pretty cool neat neat thing to be a part of for sure yeah it really was it really was well on that one you had a big old kind of i don't know what you call it but a flare of lava kind of poked its head out at you and gave you a spook it looked like yeah, as a matter of fact, um, we had done uh, a reconnaissance rappel down inside. There's myself and Bradley Ambrose, uh, one of my friends who was on the rigging team from New Zealand. We had been in a lot of volcanoes together, and we went down to the very bottom 
and we made sure that we both set foot at the bottom at the exact same time so that we could both <laughs> claim the, the first, or at least as a team. And as we're down there, the, the TV crew is working their way up the side of the volcano shooting with the, the uh, contest winners. So we're going down just to check out, scope out the bottom of the crater. And I'm looking over, and the thing burps out this spray of little pieces of lava that I was not anticipating. And uh, they were raining down all around me. Luckily, they were not very big, uh, just small ones. But uh, still, it uh, it got my attention. Yeah, I'll bet. So if that hits your suit, does it, I mean, is it going to actually stick or does it roll off of you? How do those suits work? Well, luckily, the lava actually cools as it flies through the air. So it tends to form a bit of a crust on the outside. Okay. So it'll hit you. It's still the same as being hit by a rock because <laughs> it is a rock but it's molten on the inside. So you'll get the impact. If you're wearing the suit, that's going to be your major concern. Um, if you get hit with a big enough one, of course, it's going to do damage. And if it ends up stuck to you, then then uh, you're going to run into even more problems. I have burned through the fingertips of my special aluminized uh, gloves from poking at lava flows before. So even though the suit protects you from the radiant heat, if you actually physically touch the lava, you're going to see flames coming up from the material. Yeah, don't don't poke the bear, the bear George. Yeah. <laughs> Leave don't it alone. <laughs> Leave it where it is. So that brings up a question. On all of these uh, outings and expeditions that you've been on, what would you say your closest call yet has been? Oh, do you want the whole list or just the top 10? <laughs> Maybe um, the top two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, being in the middle of Hurricane Katrina was pretty frightening. Okay. Uh, that was eight hours of being in a blender with uh, raindrops feeling like like needles hitting you in the face and, and debris flying through the air like crazy. So that, that was kind of frightening. We didn't know if the building we were in was going to survive. So that was, uh, that was scary. Um, but the, the most frightening one was in Kenya, in a cave. I do a lot of cave explorations, actually. And I was in, in this cave that's Kittim Cave. It's, it's very famous. Uh, it was in the, the book The Hot Zone. And it's famous for two reasons. There are elephants that go underground to the back of this cave, and they scrape the cave walls with their tusks, and they chew the rocks to get salt in their diet. So we were filming an episode of the Angry Planet TV show, which I used to host, and we wanted to try and film these elephants. But the problem is, is that the bats that live in this cave are associated with the Marburg hemorrhagic fever, which is very similar to Ebola. Oh, great. Yeah. And uh, there's been two outbreaks of Marburg virus from this cave, but we don't know how the virus gets from the bats to humans. So I brought this biologist with me who's a bat specialist. He's mapped the cave before. We go in. We've got surgical gloves. I've got a Tyvex coveralls, eye protection, gas mask, helmet, eye protection, like the works. Almost like a level four biohazard kind of suit. And we go to the back of the cave, and of course, my cameraman needs to film. He flips on his light. And the thousands, tens of thousands of bats that are in the back start freaking out, and they're flying past us now, and they're emptying their bladders and their bowels as they go past. <laughs> I hope this is not how they do it. <laughs> so we're getting splattered oh. by bat excrement, and I'm literally getting hit by these bats. They're crashing into me. So I grab one, literally grab one of these bats as it bounces off my chest. And I've got it in my hands, and I turn and I go, because I want to show and sh um show the cameraman to get a close-up because it's part of the story. But what I didn't realize is that this was a mother who had a baby hanging on to her and she was very protective mm. and she bites through the glove and into my thumb. 
And oh, I don't know how much people probably know about what happens to you if you get one of these viruses, these Marburg or uh, Ebola type viruses. Your internal organs start to liquefy after about a, about five days or so, and uh, you get a fever, and then you end up bleeding out through every orifice, every orifice. That sounds wonderful. And so in that moment, that little moment when that little tooth went through the glove and into uh, my thumb, I didn't know if I had a week and a half left to live. No kidding. And there was nothing I could do about it other than wait and see if I started to develop any symptoms. So I, I was... I didn't know if I was the walking dead. I kind of like to explain it to people that way. Wow. So that's not just a scary moment. That's a scary moment and week or two following. Exactly. You get to think about it for a while. Wow. You get to stew on it and linger. And I actually spent the night in the cave that night. I camped in the cave because I figured, eh, in for a penny, in for a pound. (laughs) And (laughs) what have I got to lose at this point, right? Right. (laughs) So, and, and the worst part, well, not the worst part, um, well, the good part is I didn't die because I'm here talking to you. But uh, we never saw the elephants. They didn't come while we were there. And uh, when I got home here to Toronto, I still had to go through a whole series of rabies shots just in case as well. So Yeah, you're like, guys, that's not going to do anything. <laughs> rabies would be my, the least of my concern. <laughs> yeah, well, they, well, uh, they, well r- rabies is just as deadly. Uh, it'll kill you dead. So. Is it really? It's and, just maybe not as gruesome. Oh, it's it's not good. It's not a thing a human wants to get. Yeah. I think there's only been, if I'm not mistaken, one case of a human actually recovering from catching rabies. No kidding. So it's a very bad thing. I yeah. did not realize yeah. rabies was that serious. Yeah, it's it's very serious. Oh. So I had a couple of things to worry about. Well, you <laughs> you stick to the bats. I'll stay away from the bats. I don't need that, that kind of adventure. That's a good idea. I will. George pokes <laughs> the bears. I'm not going to poke the bears. <laughs> All right, let's move on to other things. I mean, you've done a ton of volcanoes. You've done um, the crystal caves we talked about. So let's talk about your trip up uh, in Manitoba. You went yes. to visit some polar bears. What was that all about? The the, the southernmost um, population of polar bears living in Hudson Bay. Yeah, this is a really interesting place. Um, there's a spot in, in northern Manitoba called Churchill. It's the polar bear capital of the world. And I've been there a couple of times now, which is really, really amazing. So it's the one place where the polar bears that live on um, live on Hudson Bay, they tend to gather right there because that's where the ice forms first in, in the fall. So they're waiting to go back out on the sea ice. When mm-hmm. the sea ice melts, there's no point in them being out in the sea because there's, they, you know, they, they hunt on the ice. When the right. ice is gone, they have to come on land. So they spend their summers patrolling the shores scavenging for whatever they can but they're not really eating so they're hungry very hungry bears and i was um i was working in association with the royal canadian geographical society of which i'm a fellow and i was hosting a trip up there and there's uh there's this place called nanook lodge where you can actually go out and walk with the polar bears. Usually if you do a polar bear trip in Churchill, you're in these special tundra buggy vehicles. It's kind of like a like a specialized, I won't call it a school bus because it's more custom than that, but it's a big vehicle. You can fit a lot of people in with these huge tires. You can drive out on the tundra and the polar, polar bears can't reach you because you're up high. What we did is actually go out with very well-trained guides um, and and literally get out of the vehicles and walk out onto the tundra 
with these bears and these are the largest land carnivores on earth they they stand uh they stand 10 feet tall when they're up on their hind legs these things are massive and wow. we saw so many of them oh they're beautiful so you go out to uh to try and poke the bears again <laughs> <laughs> well i was actually I was kidding about there. that Sort of. Here's the thing is I've been there twice, once with the RCGS and another time I was actually filming an episode of a TV show and I had a friend of mine who's a bear expert and we were gathering uh, bear scat samples, bear poop, to bring back to the University of uh, – of, or to the zoo in Winnipeg to study what these bears are eating when they're not on, this, on the sea ice eating seals. And, well, the result is they're not eating very much. They're basically just sort of nibbling on grass where they can, and that's not much for a bear. Mm -hmm. So we were trying to get in close proximity to these bears to get these fresh poop samples and tagging them with GPS and this kind of thing. And I got to learn a lot about reading polar bear body language. And there was this one incident, incident where we had this large male who was curious about us. And he was lying there, and we got quite close. I would say maybe 20 or 30 yards away. And these things can run really fast. <laughs> the last thing you want to do is try and run from a polar bear because it will trigger their their predatory instinct. Right. And they run after you, and they will eat your face. Um, <laughs> and more. And more. <laughs> I don't think yeah. they're going to stop there. <laughs> yeah. But generally, we're not on their menu. But still, they 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 are intimidating. And so this bear started getting interested in us and he stood up and he started to sort of lean back and forth. He started to yawn and nibble on grass. And that's a sign of stress. He, he, he was curious, but he didn't know what to do. And then he starts walking towards us. And what we had to do was to show a sign of dominance. So huh. we took a couple of steps towards the bear who is now slowly moving towards us so now we're closing the gap between us and the bear and i'm with my 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 good friend matthias who's a bear expert and he's much bigger than i am so i figure well at least i can probably hide behind him um we'll we'll see how this goes and so we stop and then the bear stops and he's looking back and forth and he's sizing us up and he takes another couple of steps and then we have to take him now another couple of steps but at that point now, we've asserted to this bear that we're not afraid of him. And predators don't like other animals that are not afraid of them because it's a, it's a threat to them. So they he eventually sort of backed away, and we were able to keep this buffer of space between him and us just by moving ahead in this slightly aggressive manner. It, was, uh, it, it got my heart rate pounding, that's for sure, because I've never been in a situation like that before. Well, I'll bet. And you're kind of, I mean, you're obviously at a point of no return then. I mean, it's like this better work, this whole bluff, because I'm not getting out of this. This is, you know, my heat suit's not going to protect me here. <laughs> well, we did have a shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> well, still not so, sure you would have gotten out of it. <laughs> well, we, 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 that was our backup wow. plan. Actually, we had, uh, we had a few things. We had some bear flares and we had a shotgun. I think we had two shotguns. So, we the last thing we want to do is shoot the bear. Of course, that, that's yeah. the absolute last last thing that we want to do. I mean, no, wait, second last thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> second last thing that we want. Um, so luckily, it worked out really, really well. It was intimidating and exhilarating for me, but I learned a lot, and I'm looking forward to the next time I get to go up north and see these bears. They really are that. amazing. Yeah, that's yeah. got to be fantastic. So all and of... this is something that anyone can do, actually. Anyone can do oh, really? this. It's, it's super cool. Yeah. But they can't get out and approach the bear, right? I mean, they got to stay in the bus, I assume. No, no, no. This, really? this experience that I'm talking to you about can actually be done 
by uh, by anyone. It's a it's a simple two step process. Ask and pay. Well, I guess money money buys everything, right? Yeah, yeah. Huh. Uh, uh, Churchill Wild is the company. That it's a really cool thing. They're the only company that has guides that are skilled enough that can actually take you out on the tundra walking with polar bears. Wow. So if you're looking for something that's sort of a little more intense than a usual sort of trip, you know, that's something that you can do. So I like sharing experiences with people, but a lot of the stuff that I do, most people can't do. Most people are not going to be rappelling into a volcano or chasing tornadoes or going into a pit of fire in Turkmenistan, right? So I like to every now and then show people some cool adventures that they themselves can do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it sounds amazing. That would be a, an amazing experience for sure. It is. Well, what a perfect segue right there. So let's talk about Cloud9 Tours because I think last time you uh, you talked with us in uh, episode 89, you heard you were just putting this together. You guys had just started this. So this was basically a, a tour company that takes people on storm chasing expeditions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, Cloud9 has been around for a long time. It's oh, okay. been around since about the mid 90s. Oh, okay. And, I thought it was uh, newer. It, no, it's it's actually the longest running tornado chase tour company in the world. Cool. And uh, there's a, a few of them now. Um, typically, what people would do is fly to Oklahoma City, and we'll pick you guys up at the airport, and then take you for two week uh, trips to go and chase tornadoes. We deal with all the driving. We deal with all the weather forecasting. We'll help you with tips on how to do storm photography and things like that. And uh, you get to enjoy uh, these uh, the greatest show on Earth, some of these massive supercell storms that can be twice the height of Mount Everest. And if we're lucky, we'll see some tornadoes. This past year, uh, May and June is the peak of tornado season, so tornado season's coming up for me. But last year, I wasn't working with the tour company. Uh, I actually did something a little different this past year. I was working with the Weather Network, which is the Canadian version of the Weather Channel. And we had such an incredible season we were only able to to chase tornadoes for about a week but we saw tornadoes on five consecutive days wow five days in a row tornadoes 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 including one day near dodge city kansas where we saw at least nine or ten tornadoes come out of one storm in one afternoon holy cow that's a busy day it, it was a busy day sometimes there were two uh, on the ground simultaneously. There was one moment where there were actually three tornadoes on the ground simultaneously, and that was just mind-bending seeing that. Well, yeah, because you watch these storm chaser programs, and there's a lot of time spent sitting around and watching weather maps, and then quickly chasing. You know, maybe we'll see something. You know, there's a there's a uh, uh, a sign of a of a tornado touching down, so they all race to it, and uh, oh, yeah. you know, may or may not see it. But and then you guys see nine or ten on a given day. That's crazy. It is. It really was crazy. And it's a, at least 90% driving and waiting. That's pretty much all it is, is driving and waiting. So if, you, if you're thinking about ever doing storm chasing, you have to bear in mind that you need to be really, really patient. You have to love gas station food. <laughs> you have to love uh, corn, um, you know, watching corn and wheat and telephone poles go by because there's not a lot to see in Kansas and Nebraska and Oklahoma. And uh, and then when the storms come, it's really amazing. There's not much to see when you look at the horizon in Kansas. You got to look up at the sky. That's where the best show is. So storm chasing is basically 23 hours of cornfields and corn dogs, followed by one hour of of amazing sights. That's you pretty much summed it up right there. <laughs> but you know what? It's that little punctuated moments of excitement that right. make all the rest of it totally worth it. I've been chasing storms now for. 
20 years and uh my my season coming up i'm not even sure if i'm going to be able to chase this year because uh, i might actually be going to north korea really well we're gonna have <laughs> now to talk might not about be that. the best time to go to north korea but the plans are in the works right now yeah you don't get the opportunity too often <laughs> yeah exactly i'm literally right now as i'm talking to you i'm waiting to hear back about my entry visa approval whether or not they're going to let me in and then of course there's the increasing possibility that uh, that Trump may end up turning North Korea into mm-hmm. a uh, radioactive slag heap between now and the end of May, which yeah. is when I'm supposed to go. So, Yeah, of all the times to try and get into North Korea, this is probably not the best uh, few months to be waiting on that decision. So I want to hear Plus, about what you're going to go over there for in a few minutes, but I don't want to go that far yet. <laughs> Fair enough. What I wanted to ask is uh, back on storm chasing, you see a lot of vehicles and maybe it's because, you know, they're, they're hyped and, you know, they're on a TV show or something. You see a lot of vehicles that are just these wacky Batmobile looking things to chase storms. So I wanted to ask what you chase in. <laughs> well, my, my truck is a little bit wacky, not as wacky as some. Uh, it's actually the first and only car I've ever owned. It's a 1999 Honda CRV. <laughs> yeah. <brand> new. <laughs> Uh, it's like 18 years old now, I guess. I bought it brand new, drove it off the lot without ever test driving it. And within three weeks of buying it, I was drilling holes in the roof to mount all my antennas and other equipment. And uh, it's been through hell and back. Uh, it It's literally been in about a dozen hurricanes, including Sandy and Katrina. It's been in a tornado. It has... Uh, I've had to suck seawater out of the engine cylinders with a straw because it got flooded during Hurricane Ike in Galveston, Texas, and it's still alive. It didn't seize up the engine. That was like seawater in the engine. Wow. Um, I've driven it from Toronto all the way up to the Arctic, onto the ice roads, and onto the Arctic Ocean um, to the furthest northern point in Canada that you can drive to, a little little village called Tuktiuktuk. And so it is literally driven on the Arctic Ocean. Very cool. The hood is so dented from hail that it looks like a jealous ex-girlfriend took a ball-peen hammer to it. (laughs) I've seen a few of those in my day. (laughs) Oh, oh, I don't want to know. No, no, not my cars, luckily. (laughs) (laughs) And I can't tell you how many windshields I've gone through over the years. Yeah, I'll bet. Well, is the so is the car fortified at all, or you just have a bunch of antennas on top and you just throw caution to the wind, literally? Um, it's it's semi fortified. I've I've got the the roof is sprayed with truck bed liner to protect it, and I've got uh, a cage on the sort of on the on the roof that protects. I've got 360 degrees worth of lighting so I can film around the car at night during storms, and that's all got this special welded roof rack. And so I've done a lot of customizations to it, but it's not like one of these guys that drives the armored sort of tank vehicles that that intend to put themselves in the path of tornadoes. Right. Right. Uh, those guys are a special breed of crazy. Um, <laughs> well, they have the anchors that drill down in the dirt and the little flaps that yeah. come down so the wind can't lift them up. Yeah, on hydraulics and things like that, right. right? So I know some of these guys that do that and more power to them, but that's not really what that's, – that's not what I want to do. So I want to be able to get as close as I can safely and get a good shot, video or, you know, and, and photographs. If you're inside the thing, you're putting yourself in extreme risk for very little benefit. So – you know, let they can have it. It's not really my my bag. 
Yeah, and I think their big goal is to get in there and actual actually capture uh, on anemometers, you know, the wind speeds and whatnot that are experienced within within inside it. So it's not uh, it's not yeah, all crazy. That, There's a purpose to it, but it's still still a little wacky. The, yeah, that's what they'll tell you to justify. <laughs> it's not even hooked up to anything, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> that's funny. Well, I'd I'd rather see you just looking from the outside in your CRV than uh, going in and plant yourself in the in the middle of it because that is uh, that is a little on the wacky side. In my well, opinion. I was accidentally in a tornado once, and it was frightening enough for me to understand that I don't want to do it again. Yeah, no kidding. Well, it's dangerous enough, you know, and just uh, just this past month, you know, we lost uh, three storm chasers and it wasn't even because a, a tornado hit them. It was just, right. you know, people chasing the same storm got in a, a collision in an intersection. I'm sure, you know, they were in a hurry and focused, uh, you know, on the storm itself and ended up just kind of unfortunately losing track of the other vehicles. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a dangerous thing. It's inherently when dangerous. You spend, yeah. When you spend so much time on the road and driving. Being on the road themselves is actually more dangerous than the storms. Yeah, I'll bet. And uh, what happened with these three guys, um, I never knew these particular guys. I knew of them. And uh, one of the vehicles, I won't say who, uh, they were streaming live video so you could see what was going on. And they were were aggressively running numerous stop signs. Mm. And unfortunately, another storm chaser was coming the other way and and they got T-boned. And uh, three guys lost their lives. And it was definitely a wake-up call in the storm chaser community and i think uh we're going to be self policing a lot more than has been in the past years because you know if we're gonna die from chasing storms let it be from the storm not from running into each other right right well certainly uh, yeah but certainly a bad thing but some good can come out of it some good education and uh like you said a wake-up call is a good thing at the same time at least, yeah, that's the the, the the very least a wake-up call can come out of that. Absolutely. Such a horrible thing. Right, right. In the coming weeks, we've got some shows on the Seven Summits. We've got some long-distance running, some paddling on the Green River. We're going to talk about walking around the world and some more mountain biking. Stay tuned. You're not going to want to miss it. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. We just got back from Myanmar. You were yes. photographing the tattooed women of Chin State. Now, help me out with this because that makes no sense to me. And now for something completely different. <laughs> right? yes. There is no uh, transition there. Let's just there is There's no good segue there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I just came back from three weeks in, in Myanmar, also known as Burma. And uh, 
that, that w I was invited to join this expedition by two friends of mine, colleagues from the Explorers Club. These two, uh, um, these two women wanted to go and document a cultural practice from this one particular part of Myanmar. And it was these full face tattoos that the girls would get when they were about 15 years old. And the different tribes would have different patterns. And it was being passed on generation to generation as a sign of beauty and a sign of uh, sort of cultural belonging. And so they wanted to go and document this because the practice was banned in the 1960s, which is quite some time ago. So the women that still have these tattoos are now quite elderly. And that art form and that cultural practice is literally dying off with them. Wow. And so they contacted me at first just to consult and give them a few tips about travel to, to some of these odd places and, and such. And then they invited me to come on to document the whole thing in photos and video. And I'm like, okay, this is something I've never done before. I don't really consider myself a portrait photographer, but uh, yeah, why not? So I joined them and it was a fantastic expedition. We spent three weeks going from village to village in the hills in Western Myanmar near the border with Bangladesh. And we met, we were hoping between 100, and, 100 to 150 women. We ended up meeting 184, so far more than we were expecting to. And uh, we're able to interview all these women. I got portraits of all of these women. Um, we're in the process now of putting everything into a big database and sort of collating everything together. We're going to make a documentary out of the footage that was made. And all this data is also being sent back to Myanmar. We're going to get it translated to Burmese. So that becomes part of the permanent record with the cultural society over there. So that when these women all eventually die off, there will be a record of, of the individual stories of these individual women. So each woman had the chance to tell their story. So it's a really cool project and something that I found very rewarding, specifically because it was so different from what I normally do. Yeah, that had to be a really neat experience. I mean, you've you've done so many different things. I keep wondering how it is you get linked up. I mean, it doesn't sound like you're chasing people down, offering your services. It's more like people are saying, "Hey, George, you know, you're the man that goes down to the volcanoes, or you're the one that goes to the you know to the islands, or." you know, goes down into these uh, crystal caves. Why don't you come along and guide us while we're collecting our, you know, our data or whatnot? I mean, how do you get linked up? You're obviously doing something you absolutely love. And what's the yeah, magic? I, I, I wish I had a re real good answer for that. The only <laughs> thing I can say is um, when you spend enough time doing something, you get good at it and you get to a level where people can't ignore you, right? If you're good enough at something, People will, will seek you out and they'll find you. And so it's just a matter of reputation, right? You do good work. You meet a lot of people. I'm associated with the Explorers Club, so I meet people through there. I'm associated with the Royal Canadian Geographical Society. I meet people through there. So there's all these different communities and, and just through doing things like this podcast, people hear about me and then they reach out. And so it's just it just snowballs and one thing builds on the next and if there's one thing that i'm sort of known for it's for being versatile and uh and <laughs> saying yes all the time <laughs> well sure, surely yes he'll lot. approach a polar bear i mean he's been down in volcanoes <laughs> the guy's just crazy enough to do it let's grab him yeah yeah exactly let me tell you one of the things i love the most is helping scientists out um because i'm the kind of guy that will go and 
get the samples or go to the places that are very difficult or dangerous for them to do it, but I've got the, the skills and experience and, and the lack of self-preservation uh, <laughs> intuition, I suppose. Maybe missing a gene there. <laughs> missing a yeah, gene or brain cell um, to go and do that. But man, I, I love I love doing those kind of things. And yeah. uh, and I hope to keep doing it for a long, long time. And, and between that and working on television programs and uh, – and talking at libraries and schools and things like that, I find it very rewarding. And I, I mentioned this last time, but it's worth bringing up again. The most important thing that I learned a long time ago is that you can decide what your meaning is, your purpose on this planet. And so I decided about two decades ago that mine was to travel the world, go to the most extreme places, document what I've seen, and share that with as many people as possible. And that has been my mission statement. That has been my raison d'etre for my entire adult life. And every decision I make and everything I do is focused along that line. And so that allows me to not stray off and get distracted too much because I know what I want and I know why I want it. And that that statement makes it very important for me to give back and to, to show people what's out there, right? So that's what I find rewarding. Yeah, that's so cool and well said. I mean, I think that's uh, everybody, I mean, 99% you know, of the population battles with that. And I think a lot of people are sitting somewhere in some office or some cubicle or you know, some traffic on a highway somewhere thinking, why am I doing what I'm doing? How is it I do what I love? So you're essentially saying, figure out what you love in the beginning and then uh, perseverance and you know, repetition – can get you where you truly want to be, but you need to kind of align yourself with what you really want to do from the get go. How, how are you supposed to hit the target if you don't know what the target is or yeah, where right, the target is? Right. Right. So if you know the what and you know the why, and the why is really important, it's more important than the what. If you know the why, you'll figure out the how. Yeah, right? absolutely. Very yeah, cool. You, That's uh, you find inspiration. A way. Inspiration for sure. <laughs> So we've already whipped through about 50 minutes. I don't want to miss the whole North Korea thing. So why in the world are you heading over to North Korea if you get to go? I need a vacation. <laughs> vacation in North Korea. Okay. Do tell. <laughs> you need to elaborate on that one. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting because I, one of my goals is to travel, like I said, to the most extreme places, right? And I've been sort of branching out and going to just not just storms and volcanoes, but to other kinds of weird, extreme places. And there are a few places that are more extreme than North Korea. And most people who uh, – uh, let me rephrase that. Most of the very few who do go to North Korea only get to really go to Pyongyang, mm -hmm. and you don't get to see much of the country because right. it's so strictly controlled. But I have this opportunity to join a group that I discovered that uh, will not only be going to North Korea, but the plan is to go mountain climbing in North Korea, in the north part of the, of the country, and we'll actually be climbing and camping. So it's going to be this really interesting experience to do something that very, very few Westerners are allowed to do or have been given permission to do, and that really appealed to me. So I figured, you know what? This country of North Korea may be kind of messed up in the not-too-distant future. I should probably do this now. I was actually planning on doing it in the fall, and I moved it up to May So uh, because of the political situation. Right. But things have escalated just in the past few days, and we'll see what happens. Uh, my trip may end up getting canceled at the last minute. I don't know. 
but that kind of uncertainty I find appealing. Well, the uncertainty in my mind is do you do you even consider is it does it bother you that you know there's a chance that you might not come back? Well, I figure if I could choose my own way to die, getting blown up in a nuclear explosion in North Korea <laughs> would be fast. And, you know, I'm okay with that. Not that it's going to happen. I don't anticipate that happening. But that's not the worst way to go. Well, I, I always, you know, you always hear stories of, you know, people, uh, you know, Westerners getting uh, nabbed and, and held on to because they've been suspected as spies, you know. So that would be my thought is like, well, it, you know, you never know. It's only the people who don't follow the rules. Every instance has been really? someone who has they brought a Bible in, or they've, they've. There are very specific rules for visiting North Korea. You can't have lenses longer than 150 millimeters. There, you have to uh, have to do certain things, and you can't bring certain things, and this and that. Right. So if you if you know the rules and you follow the rules, it's no problem. Very interesting. Well, so basically, so, uh, if you want to go to North Korea or, or any place like that, just a matter of uh, researching and making sure you know what's uh, what's right and what's wrong and don't don't cross the line, I guess. Well, when you travel as much as I do, you really have to right. do a lot of research ahead of time because you can run into all kinds of cultural differences and faux pas and, and things that you didn't realize were going to become a huge problem down the road. So oh, it's yeah. a comes with experience. Yeah, there's a lot of things we don't understand, you know, about all the other cultures that we might just consider are, you know, just commonplace for us in our culture, but are very, um, you know, very rude over in other cultures. I mean, Burma is no place to, to mess around either. You can probably get in some pretty uh, hot water over there. As a matter of fact, yeah, as a matter of fact, there was uh, big problems in the southern part of the state that we were in. There was uh, ethnic cleansing going on with uh, a group from uh, a group of uh, Muslim Bangladeshis that uh, has been newsworthy just before we went over there. So we were on uh, on our best behavior while we were there as well. So you just never know. Yeah, yeah, I'll bet. Yeah. Well, keep your keep your wits about you and uh, do what you're supposed to do, I guess. <laughs> so last question: Out of everything you've done. Uh, what would you say is, was your most amazing experience? The one that that while laying on your deathbed, you know, many, many, many years from now, you just look back on and you grin and think, man, I did that. Ah, there's, there's two that, that spring to mind. Number one is the crystal cave that you talked about, the Nike right. crystal cave. Because that's flooded now. You can't get into it, right? I know. And that's what makes it so interesting yeah. now because uh, you can't – I can't even go back if I tried. And that place is just so brilliantly amazing. Do yourself a favor. Google Nika, N-A-I-C-A, Crystal Cave. It will blow your mind. The crystals are the size of telephone poles, tree trunks, and it's unbearably hot. You have to wear ice-filled suits. It's crazy. Oh, and I'm sure the pictures and video don't even do it justice. You know, oh, because you you're not feeling the heat and the humidity while you're yeah. looking at the videos, right? It's, just, it's, it's a full-body experience, and it's so draining, but it was so rewarding being able to go there. So that's that's right up there in my experiences. But probably my favorite was going into the Darvaza doorway to hell burning gas crater in Turkmenistan because um, that was uh, that was done um, as a science grant uh, from National Geographic. I led a National Geographic expedition to go there and it was the world's first. No one had ever set foot at the bottom. We were gathering soil samples to, to see if there's any type of bacterial life living at the bottom of this flaming gas crater that's 100 feet deep and 230 feet wide it's been burning for 45 years and uh 
if you happen to own the most recent version of the Guinness Book of World Records, you'll see a two-page spread of the gas crater with me suspended by ropes over top of it. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> which is super cool to see yourself in the Guinness Book of World Records. I'll bet. Yeah, yeah not just listed by name either. They have a, a full spread of you. That's pretty cool. Yeah, very, very cool. So th that was extremely rewarding to me. Yeah, I'll bet. I'll bet. Well, I hope you do get to North Korea, and I hope you do come back from North Korea, and I hope things simmer down and we don't uh, end up you know, where, you know, where it, it could end up if things go badly. So um, I want you to save me an interview. I want to hear about what climbing and camping in North Korea is like, because that's not something you get to, uh, to talk to people much about in the Western world. So definitely keep note. me on your list. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, it was a blast talking to you again, George, and good luck on your next adventures. And I can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you. All right. Hey, if you've been enjoying the Adventure Sports Podcast, do me a favor, go over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a rating and a review. It always helps. Join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as well. And if you're not yet a member of the ASP Member Deal site, go check it out. It's members.adventuresportspodcast.com. It's a way for you guys to help support the show while you're getting great content, but you also get some great deals at the same time. So check it out. Thanks for listening, and until the next episode, get out and try something new. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.